listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, the, the portion of First Thessalonians that we're in this morning that Jordan read for us, um, it's, it's a, a really important portion of the book in terms of, of like doing a deep dive and understanding the, the occasion uh, under which Paul wrote the letter to the Thessalonians, understanding more of the relational dynamics between Paul and, and the Thessalonians. Uh, but it, it also is kind of a summary of the letter in, in that a lot of what Paul says in, in, from 17 of chapter 2 through chapter 3 is, it's almost like he stops midway through the letter and is like, hey, by the way, this is all the stuff I've been and will be writing about. Um, and, and that's not like an uncommon thing for Paul to do. Um, he knows that people are forgetful and that being repetitive is helpful. Um, but what that means for us is that, that two of the major themes in this portion of the text are things that we've already discussed in weeks previous or that we will discuss at links in, in, in weeks to come. Uh, those themes being Paul's love for the Thessalonians. Um, that's really saturating all of this. Paul really loves the Thessalonians, and he wants to see them, and he's disappointed that he can't see them. Um, he says that over and over. He sent Timothy to get a report of how they're doing. Paul's love for the Thessalonians should be a model to all of us uh, for, for what it means to, to love uh, our brothers and sisters in the faith, and especially for those whom we have any sort of responsibility to as a leader, whether that is uh, pastorally or uh, as a parish leader or just maybe a younger Christian that, that you're discipling or your children. This love for them, this desire to see them flourish is beautiful, but that's not primarily what we're going to talk about. Uh, the second theme in this, this portion of the letter is, is that Paul is rooting every sort of call that he gives to the Thessalonians for how they should live and reasoning for why he, he wants them to be established in the faith. He's rooting them in, in this uh, understanding that Christ is going to return and that when he returns, he's going to judge. And, and when he judges, that we will all have to give an account for our lives, for the things that we've done, for the ways that we've spent our time and expended our energy, and that every way in which we live should be rooted in the understanding that that's coming, that that's a reality, that we live presently in light of the end. Um, and, and there's a lot to be said about that, and luckily we will have a lot of time in the coming weeks to, to speak on that. Uh, but the third theme in this letter is that of Satan and spiritual warfare which is something that we will not likely discuss a lot in the rest of the letter. And that, frankly, over the years at Sojourn, we've probably um, not given enough time to discussing. Um, and, and so let me read from, from 17 of chapter 2 through verse 5 of chapter 3, and I'm going to, to add emphasis on, on a couple of phrases uh, within this so that you see kind of what I'm getting at. Paul says, but since... We were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, 
and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith Hear this, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So in, in the first week of uh, our series in, in 1 Thessalonians, Reed uh, went to Acts 17, which is where we have this historical account of Paul's uh, first visit to Thessalonica, where this church was established, this church that he's writing to. Paul and Silvanus or Silas and Timothy, they go into Thessalonica, they go into the synagogues uh, where, where Jews are worshiping, and they begin proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he is the Lord and Savior. And, and, and some of the Jews in these synagogues start converting. They start trusting in, in, in Jesus. They become Christians, and this church is established, And then there were Jews in Thessalonica who were very opposed to this Christian movement. They they hated the gospel. They they hated what it meant for Judaism. They hated what it meant in light of living in the, the Roman Empire. And so they became this angry mob and essentially drove Paul, Silas, and and Timothy out of Thessalonica. And so the situation that Paul's writing to is one where he was driven out by a hostile mob uh, out of Thessalonica. He's been wanting to return, but he can't because he knows that if he shows up, he's a guy that people know about. And if he shows up, it's going to put the Christians in Thessalonica in danger. It's going to put him in unnecessary danger. And so he has stayed back. He's written letters. And eventually he, sent, he and Silas sent Timothy to go gather a report. Timothy's young. He's relatively unknown. He's not going to gather the sort of vitriol that Paul would if he goes into Thessalonica. And so Timothy goes and he sends this report back. But, but Paul wishes that he could go there. And he says that he has not gone there because Satan has hindered him. That Satan has hindered him. And, and this has made him anxious that he couldn't go there because the Thessalonians are, are young Christians. And Paul and Silas and Timothy, they preach the gospel to them. They probably baptize a lot of people. They establish this church. And then they leave these young Christians in a city where they're a, a, a spiritual minority, where they're a, a, an ethnic minority. And they, they leave them there in hopes that they'll flourish, but fearing that, that they haven't the root or, or the maturity or, or what it takes to be sustained. And so Paul his Satan has hindered him from returning, and he fears that the tempter has tempted them. So at the core of everything going on in Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians, especially this difficulty of seeing them, there's an undercurrent of spiritual warfare. Satan has hindered Paul, he says. Now, now if you read Acts, there's nothing like cosmic or supernatural seemingly that's going on. There's just these angry Jewish religious leaders who want nothing to do with Paul and this Christian movement. Like, Paul is being hindered by them, and yet Paul has said that it is Satan that is hindering him. And so, so this is the context that Paul's writing into. He, he's writing in this context where they're forced out by an angry mob. They want to visit. They, they don't know if it's safe. 
Um, and, and when he says Satan has hindered him, there's probably one of two things specifically that Paul's talking about. Either he's talking about Satan has hindered him in that he knows it's too dangerous to go back to Thessalonica. Maybe he's received threats. He's received words that if he goes back there, uh, that, that there will be violence done against Christians, that, that they'll be brought before authorities or, or whatever it is. And the second option is if you read into Acts 18, when Paul goes into Corinth, he is... Um, a lot of his time is spent where he's brought before this tribunal by these other Jewish leaders who hate the Christian movement. And so, so maybe he's just saying, like, I'm caught up with this whole affair in Corinth, and, and I can't come. But either way, Paul is being persecuted by Jews who are opposed to the advance of the gospel. And Paul understands that that opposition to the gospel is not simply that these people disagree with him, but that it's the work of Satan. Satan has hindered him. He wasn't laid up with some illness or some bizarre plague. He wasn't overcome by some spooky or obviously supernatural force. Paul understood opposition to the gospel being pushed forward. He understood opposition to the church prospering as the work of Satan. And, and Paul showed concern that Satan would have been able to draw some Christians away from the gospel, maybe even utterly making the labor that they had done in Thessalonica labor in vain, that the church would just dissipate without, without leadership, without fostering growth. Um, he's probably developing this idea from, from understanding Jesus' parable of the sower, which you can read about in Mark 4, where Jesus talks about how, how the sower sows the word of God. The, the word of God is preached, and some of the seed is cast upon the rocky soil. And then when Jesus interprets the parable, he says the seed, the seed that was cast on the rocky soil, birds came and, and picked it up and, and carried it away. And then Jesus says that's, that's Satan taking the word of God and carrying it away so that, so that it can't be believed. And, and Paul has this anxiousness that, that maybe Thessalonica was just the rocky soil. Like maybe without, without proper shepherding, without proper care, that, that Satan's just going to come and, and carry it away. And, and so what we should realize here um, is that the apostles following Jesus' lead were very concerned with Satan. They saw in the world, they saw things that were going on as being spiritual things. And our modernist mindsets lead us to consider usually only things that we can observe, things that we can measure, um, especially like in our tribe of Protestantism, this like reformed tribe where we're, we can tend to be a bit more intellectual. Like we don't often consider the spiritual things that, that are going on. We attribute a lot to bad circumstance, bad luck, and bad people, but we don't often attribute things to bad spirits. But, but Jesus and the apostles do, which means if we don't, we need to correct, right? If Jesus and the apostles are, are viewing the world through this lens where spiritual forces are at work, then we are the ones who probably need to adjust our mindset. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, the ruler of this world, that's significant. He calls Satan the ruler of this world. He calls him the prince of demons. Much of Jesus' ministry was in direct opposition to Satan and to his demons, beginning with the first act of Jesus' ministry, which following his baptism, what does he go? He goes into the wilderness to do what? To be tempted by Satan, 
to overcome the temptation of Satan. And then when he returns into civilization to do his, his actual work of ministry, much of it is in opposition to Satan. He's casting out demons. He's healing those who are oppressed by demons. And eventually, the climax of Jesus' work is in his crucifixion and resurrection, which culminates because Judas Iscariot betrays him and sells him out after what happens, as John's gospel records, Satan entered into Judas' heart. So, so if we want to know where is Satan in, in the events of the gospel, he's all over it. He's opposing it at every step. Jesus did not incarnate into a spiritually neutral world. The early church and especially the apostles were constantly under attack. And if you read it historically, they were under attack from authorities, both governmental and religious authorities. And yet, Paul famously wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, to the, the Christians in Ephesus, he says, put on then the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul says, so while we outwardly wrestle against emperors and governors and anti-Christian religious leaders, the real wrestling that's taking place in the ministry of the gospel, in the work of the church, is against the schemes and pupils of the devil. Jesus referred to his enemies as those who were a brood of vipers, likening them to the serpent in the garden. He called his enemies those whose father was the devil. This is not Jesus being rhetorically clever. He is saying that there's a real allegiance to which the enemies of the gospel have to the devil. In Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul tells Christians who they formerly were, before they were united to Christ, he says that they were those who followed Satan. And that Satan's spirit was at work within them. And so all of this is to say that Satan and demons are real. Whether we can see it or not, whether we've considered it or not, whether it's comfortable for our current intellectual desires or not, Satan and demons are real. And... And they hate Christ. They hate Christ. They hate Christ's people. Satan is actively working in the lives of those who are not in Christ in order to oppose Christ and his kingdom. Paul says that, that people who have not yet repented and believe in Jesus have often not done so because Satan has blinded their hearts. Blinded them to the truth. So opposition to the gospel is not only frustrating, it's not only unfortunate, it's not only a symptom of our current time, it is satanic. The secular culture at large is not only far from God, it is under the influence of Satan and his demons. Now if Satan is real and he has a host of demons who work with him and for him, what are we to actually believe about them, right? Um, 
This is an interesting thing about the Bible because really from Genesis to Revelation, there is throughout the Bible a lot said about angels and demons, about these spiritual beings. There's an assumption that they're real. There's a lot said about them. There's an assumption that the readers know that they're real, but there's not just like one passage where we could go to and it's like, here's the primer on what the Bible means so that you can comprehend uh, about, about these beings, right? There's not like, I can't just pull out a paragraph that's like, this is exactly what, demons and angels are and what they're like. Um, but we're to understand them as spiritual beings who are, who are at work in the universe. Some serve God and holiness. These are angels. Some serve Satan and evil, and these are demons. Satan has desires that are known, that are revealed to us in the scriptures. Satan desires to tempt Christians and all people toward sin, toward despair, toward shame, toward unbelief. He desires more than anything to lead people away from the truth about Christ. Hear this, because the truth is that Christ is his conqueror. And he wants people to have nothing to do with acknowledgement of that fact, that he has been defeated and will be destroyed. He hates Jesus in a singular way unknown to the likes of men. So that means that gospel ministry, Christian living, the, the daily pursuit of holiness, it's not just obedience to God. It's not just positive good. It's not just the advancement of good news in a spiritually neutral world. In fact, it is spiritual warfare against a serious, powerful, clever, and focused enemy. And recognizing that the church is at war with Satan and his demons has at times and in places led Christians to, to make some mistakes, to err. And things like de-emphasizing what seems like the mundane and simple ministry of the word. To de-emphasize the quiet pursuit of godliness and love of neighbor. Because if, if we're at war with, with all these cosmic forces, maybe that the church needs to just be this full of cross-wearing ghostbusters who cast out demons everywhere we go. Well, the problem with that is that's not what the New Testament documents for us, what the church was doing, and it's not what it prescribes for us. Others have taken... To, to refusing responsibility for themselves and their sin and their idleness and, and, and really any negative thing that happens to them and they just blame all of the ill that falls on them on Satan. And that's certainly not what the scriptures teach us to do. Others, and this is especially common in our modernist setting, have trivialized demonic things as if it's if all this demonic stuff, this angelic stuff, it's just antiquated, like antiquated metaphor for badness. And that we can kind of laugh about it. We can put stuff about Satan and demons on coffee mugs and have a chuckle and, and stuff, but it's like, but it's not really serious. It's not really real. It's not really something to, to consider. And others have allowed the satanic influence in the secular world, this acknowledgement that the world that is not united to Christ is in some ways united to Satan and his kingdom. It's allowed for some Christians to, to use that as an excuse for not loving their neighbors, for hating their neighbors, or for, for removing themselves from the world um, as much as possible out of fear and out of disdain. And none of these responses are the response that the Bible calls us to. 
Um, none of them are fully compatible with the implications of the good news of Jesus. And so instead, what we need is to be rooted in the truth and to live for Christ boldly amidst all affliction and all opposition. And and so I'm going to suggest three things that we should do as we consider Satan and demons and their influence on the world. And the first is that we need to be a people who recognize. We need to recognize that Satan is real and that he is at work. We need to recognize that Satan hates Christ and hates his church. And most importantly, we need to recognize that Satan doesn't win. So we don't live in a spiritually neutral world, but we also don't live in a dualistic world in which God and goodness have been at this eternal battle with Satan and evil and their equal and opposite foes. And we'll just see how it turns out in the end. That is not what's going on. Satan is a creature created by God. He's not eternal. He's known by God. He's been ultimately defeated by God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So hear this, sins being forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus, that's defeat for Satan, who is the tempter and the father of sin. That truth has been made known fully through the person and work of Jesus, the word made flesh, that's defeat for Satan. Why? Because he's the father of lies. And the truth sets people free from his bondage. That the world is being made new through the resurrecting power of Jesus is defeat for Satan because he's the ruler of this present evil age and he has no place in the new things to come. John's gospel begins by saying that Jesus is the light which shines in the darkness and that the darkness has not overcome it. Church, the story of creation both the beginning of creation, the first words in creation, all the way through eternity is this, light wins. Light wins. Jesus is the victor. Satan, he's on his last leg. He's a lame duck ruler. He's doomed to be thrown out, thrown into a lake of fire, but he's not going to go without a fight. He will go kicking and screaming, and desperate. He's a real and powerful enemy, but he has not and will not win. Jesus wins. Colossians 2 says that in the cross, Jesus has already won. That that when Jesus was crucified, which is this moment where Jesus hanging, seemingly helpless on the cross, this is probably where Satan thought he had won. And Paul says that, in fact, Jesus hanging on the cross has put Satan and his demons to open shame because all of the guilt and shame that they had been lying to people with for all of human history, telling people that God could not love them, would not love them, would never be reconciled to them, all of it is solved in the cross of Christ. That is open shame for Satan and his hosts. The good news and the story of eternity can be summed up in two words. Jesus wins. He is the victor, and we participate in his victory. But even so, Satan is at work. He's at work against us and against you, and we need to be on the lookout for him. And that sounds vague. It sounds abstract. How can I be on the lookout for this this person and these beings that that I can't see, that I I don't know much about? And and I'm going to give you a personal story to help you understand what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, I found myself feeling very anxious. I found myself feeling uh, tempted toward a bizarre amount of anger and insecurity. Um, 
in, in a way that, that really was beginning to cause uh, maybe for others, but certainly for me, this unfelt tension, especially with certain Christian brothers, and, and that, that those relationships felt less stable than they had historically. And, and I was kind of really vexed by this. I was overwhelmed by this. I started to pray about this. And I realized when I thought about the things that I was feeling, the, the tension in these relationships that, that were important for, for me and for ministry, I realized through prayer that this is just the sort of thing that the enemy would love for me to give into. That, that he would love to see ministry partnerships fractured. That he would love to see meaningful, um, meaningful friendships and, and, and brotherhood um, to, to be put on pause with tension. He'd love to see me and my mental state um, waver for me to become overwhelmed with, with anxiety or, or with pride or with anger or with resentment. And, and I recognized that, that what was going on in my life wasn't simply that I, I was having a bad week. It was that there was spiritual attack going on in my life. There wasn't a big dark figure in my room. I wasn't overwhelmed by nightmares. Like, it, it was stuff that was seemingly innocuous. But what made me realize that this is the work of the enemy is that all of it was toward one end, which was to defame Christ and to prohibit the, prohibit the ministry of the gospel. And so, I, here, here's all I did. I, I, didn't, I didn't do anything marvelous to, to overcome this. I just recognized it. I submitted to the truth about God. I celebrated Christ's victory over Satan's sin and death. I prayed that the Spirit would help me in my weakness, and I talked to those brothers with whom I had tension. And guess what? Christ won. The, the gospel moves forward. Tension is resolved. My anxiety is relieved. My insecurities have been healed. Not because I'm so wonderful, not because I'm very smart, but simply because Satan and his schemes do not stand a chance against Christ. They don't stand a chance against the truth of the gospel. And so anything in your life that feels like a roadblock toward faithfulness and flourishing in Christ is something that you should consider might be the work of the enemy. He's crafty. He's a liar. And he's good at it. But Christ is stronger. Christ is infinitely more wise. He's given us his spirit so that we can walk in his victory. So hear this, church. Even though Satan is at work against us, we don't need to fear him. In fact, we should not fear him at all. Paul says that we can scoff at death. How much more can we scoff at Satan? This doesn't mean that that everything that's bad in the world is Satan's doing either. Recognizing Satan's agency and, and recognizing his reality doesn't mean that everything bad that's happening is the work of Satan. Hear this, some of the things that you experience and that the world experiences that are seemingly negative are not Satan's doing, they're God's doing. God visits his people with affliction and with discipline. This is all throughout the Bible. He, he allows us to suffer and to be tried. For, for the purposes of us being rooted in the things of Christ. God is the sovereign one over creation. The wind and waves obey him. They don't obey Satan. 
And I say this because recognizing Satan's reality and his power is good, but I I don't want us to be a people who dishonor God by giving undue credit to Satan and start blaming him for things that God has done. Start giving him credit for the power and the might and the work of God. Does that mean that sometimes we'll have to reckon with God doing things that we don't quite understand, that that feel painful? Absolutely, but let us not give credit to to Satan for what God has done. Satan's schemes are shrewd. They're crafty, but Satan's schemes are not mysterious. he's, He's not a mysterious being. His purposes are very simple. He wants to darken the hearts and minds of unbelievers such that they never believe in Christ, and he wants to distract and dissuade the church from fulfilling the work of the kingdom of Christ. That's all Satan wants to do. It's all he ever wants to do. And so if, if something bad happens in your life that doesn't relate to one of those things, probably not Satan. It might just be the work of a sinful human being. It might be yours, right? Like we're growing in sanctification. Sometimes bad things happen because we make it happen, right? So we, we don't want to give Satan credit for everything. The next thing that we need to do is we need to, to, to be a people who remind and are reminded often. We need to remind one another of the truth of the gospel, and we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. See, Satan wants us to forget. He wants us to doubt. He wants us to lack diligence in maintaining the vibrancy of our faith. But this is why the ministry of the word is so important. It's why every week we go to the word, because the the word of God contains the truth about God, and Jesus says that the truth shall set you free. Set you free from what? From the bondage to Satan and sin and death. And so this the fellowship of the church is important because seeds alone on that path that I mentioned earlier, they're easy for the birds to devour. But seeds that find healthy soil in the midst of God's garden and develop roots, Satan can't pluck them up. We sang it this morning, no power of hell, no scheme of man shall ever pluck me from his hand. If if you are abiding in the truth of God, rooted in the word of God, fellowshipping in the communion of God's people, Satan can't touch you. He might tempt you at times, he might attack you at times, but he can't remove you from Christ's body. He can't pull you away from the truth about Christ. And so it's why we have to be diligent in maintaining the unity of the church, maintaining our commitment to the word, maintaining our disciplines of prayer and and scripture and proclaiming the gospel to one another. Because the moment we forget the truth, we're vulnerable. The the moment we forget the power of God in prayer, we're we're vulnerable. The moment we separate ourselves from from the safety and security of the family of God, we're vulnerable. But but God has given us every means, every means to be victorious, namely himself. The, The final thing that we need to do is participate in reconciliation. See, many of our neighbors and our friends and our family members are not united to God through Christ. And thus, they are to varying degrees under the influence of and sometimes even in cahoots with Satan. Now hear this. We don't need to hate these people as demons. People are not demons. We don't need to fear these people as monsters. Humans bear the image of God, even when they are in bondage, 
Even when they are in darkness, they bear the image of God. They are not demons. They are not monsters. They are people who need to be reconciled to God through the work of Christ, through the recognition of God's love for them, through the proclamation of the cross and the resurrection, through the ministry of brotherly love in the church. This is our aim. See, God has graciously saved you if you're a Christian in this room. He has saved you out of slavery to sin, out of bondage to Satan, out of service to the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of marvelous light. It's not just that you went from being neutral to being united to Christ. It's not just that you were compelled by something that that was intellectually sound and you became united to Christ. A spiritual shift has taken place such that formerly you were a partner with darkness and now you are united forever in the light and holiness and love of God in Christ because the word of God has been preached to you and the spirit of God has made you alive to its beauty. And the ministry of reconciliation of the church, it becomes, when we recognize that that's what's going on, it becomes not just a ministry of persuading people to believe this good news that's been helpful for me. It becomes a ministry of emancipation from slavery. This is worth devoting your life to. Not just convincing people that your point of view is a little bit better and maybe works a little more consistently than theirs, but it's a ministry of saying, like, no, my neighbors, my loved ones, my family members, my friends, they're united to darkness. Their minds have been darkened. They have not seen, heard, or believed that God can love them, that God can forgive them, that God has a place for them, that God would want to change them, that they could belong to a family forever where they would never need to be afraid, where they'd never need to be ashamed because they're forgiven at every moment. They're beloved at every moment. This is the ministry of reconciliation and redemption, and it happens out of darkness and into life, and this is what we get to participate in. It's good news, church. It's good news, and it's a lot more compelling when we realize the spiritual actualities of what's going on. It becomes bigger. It becomes grander. It makes us need the power of God more. And not just our cleverness, not just our, our decisiveness, not just our, our courage to proclaim, but when we recognize everything that's at work, it will make our, our, our ministry of evangelism not just one of girding up our loins to, to share something with someone that's a little uncomfortable for, but it's something where we're going to have to spend time on our needs pleading with the Lord that he'll release captives into his freedom. But church, Christ wins. So we can do this ministry with confidence. Christ will have his kingdom. He will have his people. No matter how desperate and hopeless things looked in Egypt, God always knew he would have his people in Canaan. How much more in the new things of Christ? Does does God look upon people in bondage to Satan and to slavery, to sin, to, to a darkness of, of mind and heart where they're clouded from the love that God has for them. And yet he has sent his people to do what? To be light in the world. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness will not overcome it. In fact, one day, all that will be left is light. All that will be left is light. The perpetual light of God's glory and grace and a people basking in his love for them. And so, 
So let's spend time as a people praying together. Let's spend time as a people getting equipped for the work of ministry. Let's spend time as a people really devoting ourselves to the simplicity of the things God has called us to. And and to root us in that, I want to send you with almost a benediction. That passage from Ephesians 6 that I referenced earlier where Paul says that, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. This is what he says directly after that. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So so the remedy or the prescription that the scriptures give us in light of all of life being spiritual and in light of the Christian ministry being spiritual warfare, it's not something wild. It's not something outlandish. It is the simplicity of putting on the things that God has revealed to us in Christ as our daily rhythm, that we would daily saturate ourselves in the truth, that we would daily pick up the word of God, which is the sword, that we would daily put on the breastplate of faith, the shield of faith, which would, would, would extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. See, Satan would love for us to get distracted with all sorts of wild and outlandish ways that we could conquer him. But what the Bible is telling us is that the kingdom of light moves forward through men and women who humbly submit themselves to the truth of God, who submit themselves to the word of God, and who submit themselves to the work that God has given us to do. It's, it's not a shift in, in what you're called to do. It's a shift of understanding what's happening when we're doing it. That when you pick up your Bible in the morning, you're not just doing it because it makes you feel good. You're doing it and it's a rejection of Satan. And it's victory for Christ. Let's pray and then let's feast at the table of victory.